You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Revelation chapter 9, we've been talking about the trumpets and the trumpet judgments that are to come upon the earth. Uh, We saw a couple of weeks ago that Christians can be encouraged by both the current and the future destruction of the earth by seeing it as a sign of the outworking of God's sovereign purposes to defend his people and to warn his enemies. And so we talked about how we will continue to see kind of a cosmic upheaval as we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus. Um, Last week we saw that even as evil forces rise in advance, we can take comfort in knowing that God controls Satan's realm and will use their presence for our good and his glory. We talked last week about responding to the God who's gracious in judgment, that he warns, uh, he relents. We talked about the eagle that flew through and warned of the coming woes upon the earth, uh, giving indication that judgment was coming, but not yet. And so there was opportunity for repentance. We see God's grace in his judgment. We talked about aligning ourselves with the God who has good intent. We saw that these forces are unleashed upon the earth, and the only people that they can hurt or harm are people that are not sealed by God, so unbelievers. And so we talked about the promises of sin, the sin promises uh, to fulfill us, to satisfy us, to give us our longings and our wants, and yet what we find is the one who is uh, bellowing those promises, Satan and his demons, they are the ones that seek to harm us in the end. And so uh, it's a reminder to us that sin ultimately leads to death and to destruction, Uh, We talked last week about trusting in the God who controls the greatest evils for good purposes, that he reigns over evil, he uses evil, and he limits evil. Uh, We talked last week as well from an application standpoint that we should remember that the path of sin leads to judgmental torment, that we we are also to remember that the world of demons have no power over those that are sealed. And so we see a lot of God's power in his sovereignty in the chapter, uh, chapter 9 last week and even in the chapter before as we've been talking about these trumpet judgments. It brings us to uh, the sixth trumpet today, which we find in Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. It says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Our summary sentence for today, when judgment comes upon this earth, God will do so sovereignly by directing the events, and he will do so justly by providing sufficient opportunity for repentance. When judgment comes upon this earth, God will do so sovereignly by directing the events, and he will do so justly by providing sufficient opportunity for repentance. For our kids, before God judges, he gives people plenty of time 
to repent. We've been talking about the cyclical aspect of God's judgments in Revelation, that I'm not convinced that we're supposed to look to the future only for some of these things to be fulfilled, but that ultimately these things are being fulfilled leading up to the return of Jesus in a cyclical type format, meaning we continue to see fulfillment of these things leading up to the return of Jesus. I think it had context for the people who first read Revelation when it was written almost 2,000 years ago, and I think it continues to have relevance for us today. As we look around and we see cosmic upheaval around us, it should warn us. It should warn us that God is bringing judgment, that God controls everything in this creation, but that he controls it in such a way to bring judgment upon this earth. In our small groups this past week, we were talking about um, Hurricane Harvey and the devastation that it brought, and how do we we understand that in in context of some of the things that we've been studying? And oftentimes, it's, it's not appropriate to really talk about this being an act of judgment by God, right? We talk about it being a um, uh, an unfortunate act. We talk about uh, being able to help those who are in need. Rarely do we talk about or want to see it through the lens of God judging the earth. And part of the reason that it's inappropriate to talk about that a lot of times is because a lot of times people want to designate specific sins that were being judged, and the people judging and people talking about it feel that they are not guilty of the same sins. And we talked in the context of our C group that ultimately we should see this in the context of Revelation, some, some upheaval that's taking place, some devastation that is taking place, and that it ought to draw us to repent of our own sins, right? That, that God, that, that death is even possible because of sin, right? And so we see acts like this. We're gonna continue to see earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. We're gonna see devastation upon this earth as we continue to wait for Jesus to come back. And as we see catastrophic events happen, it ought to draw us to the repentance in our own life. And we're gonna see this continually get worse. I mean, as, as awful as the, as the tragedy of what, what has happened in Texas is, we talked about the death count in our C group. I mean, at the time, I think they were reporting 11 to 12 people that had died. I don't know if that's escalated greatly since then, but it will, it will pale in comparison to the numbers that are being talked about here in this chapter a third of the population of mankind being affected by things that are coming in the future. Pales in comparison. I mean, what we're, what we're literally talking about primarily in Houston and in the surrounding areas is the devastation of wood, hay, and stubble, right? The things that we possess that have been lost that can be replaced in time. And there's certainly been people who have worked tirelessly to raise money to ensure that these people are put back in, in a position of success, hopefully down the road. And we want to rally behind that. And I know Adam even posted ways that we can get involved as a church through Chick-fil-A and what they're collecting. But man, at the end of the day, what we've seen is a devastation of earthly things. And as we read in Revelation, it's going to continue to get worse as we look towards the return of Jesus. And so we see it in the context. We see God being completely in control of these events and he's working them for specific purposes with one of the main goals being to draw about the repentance in mankind. We see that here in this chapter. I mean, this is gonna be a devastating thing that comes in the future as God unleashes judgment upon the earth in ways that we may not even fully understand. All right, we're gonna talk today about how this is very symbolic and um, probably shouldn't be taken literally. And I wanna give you a couple of reasons why I even would suggest that here at the very beginning as an introductory uh, note. When we read here in Revelation 9, I mean, we're talking about fire-breathing horses with, with tails that are like snakes, 
And we're talking about them numbering over 200 million being unleashed upon the earth. Now, like I told you last week, there may actually come a day where 200 million fire-breathing horses with snake-like tails are unleashed upon this earth to kill one-third of mankind. I mean, that's, that's like one of the worst pictures that I could imagine is these type of creatures being unleashed upon the earth to bring about devastation. So even if it's the worst case scenario, God remains in control of these things because God's the one that unleashes them, right? God is the one that bounds them. God is the one that unleashes them. So at the worst case scenario, God remains in control of this. But I think we have to understand some of this as being symbolic um, just based on the context and some of the things that the Old Testament tells us. For instance, where do these things come from? Where are we told that they are unleashed from? What does the passage say? All right, on the Euphrates River, right? So if I'm taking this literally, I can, I can, I can assure you I will never relocate near the Euphrates River. I just, I just never would. And I would immediately think that we should go and evangelize anybody living near the Euphrates River because if anybody's gonna be included in the third of mankind, it would be people living near this context, I would think. I mean, we're basically describing the Euphrates River as, as, the, as the, the mouth of hell, basically, according to this passage. But if I tell you that in the Old Testament, Israel and other nations were always warned about foreign invaders coming from that direction, then it's not something unique or abstract anymore. This is, this is how God always communicated threats to Israel. Well, why the Euphrates River? Because the Euphrates River is the border to the promised land. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, when God's making promises to Abraham, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The Euphrates River was a border to Israel in the promised land. Their, their, their sphere of influence extended all the way to the Euphrates River. And then when God would warn them of coming judgment, he would consistently warn them about foreign invaders coming from the other side of the Euphrates River. Why? Because that was not their territory. Their territory extended to the Euphrates River. So obviously the threats that would come to them would come from the other side of that river. It's symbolic for where armies of destruction come from in the New Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 46, um, there's the the, the warning of coming judgment, and it's coming from the Euphrates River. It's used as a reference point because it was the border for Israel. It also became the later border for the Roman Empire, which is what's currently in effect when the book of Revelation is written. And I can go on to tell you that the Romans feared the Parthian army, which was located on the other side of the Euphrates River. And the Parthian army had long hair. The men, the men in that army had long hair, similar to what we see with the locust army. The locust army is described as having long hair. The Parthian people also would weave their horses' tails to look like serpents. They were also skilled archers and could ride on horses and could shoot people from both the front and the back of the horse with equal accuracy. So if you understand a little bit about the context of when Revelation is written, it kind of makes sense that, okay, John's describing the threat because he's writing to people who, have, who would have seen the immediate threat being on the other side of the Euphrates River, 
and they were fearful of people with long hair. They were fearful of horses that had snake-like tails that could hurt you from both the front and the back. So just a little bit of cultural context helps you to see that it may not actually come from the Euphrates River, that it may be symbolic that this was always used as a reference point for where danger came from. Because in that context, Israel owned everything up to the Euphrates River. So when invaders would come, they would come from the other side of the Euphrates River. Okay, so I think, I think a lot of this needs to be understood symbolically, that it's picturing things that helps us to understand that God's judgment is coming, but maybe not literally exactly how it's being described here in this passage. All right, so from a summary standpoint, we're talking about judgment coming upon this earth, and I think what's very clear from this passage is that it comes in a sovereign way. It comes in a sovereign way because God is overseeing these events. He's unleashing these events according to his timetable, and he does so in such a way where he's giving opportunity for repentance to people here on this earth. All right, so we're going to unpack that today, seeing God's judgment from a sovereign standpoint and from a just standpoint. Number one in our notes, we need to trust in a sovereign God who restrains and releases evil properly. We need to trust in a sovereign God who restrains and releases evil properly. For kids, God is the boss of evil. And for our adults, you might just want to write that down too. He's the boss. Like, what he says goes, and nothing happens without his permission. And evil answers to God. He's the boss of evil. He controls evil. He uses evil for his purposes. We can trust in a sovereign God who restrains and releases evil properly. We can trust in a God who isn't surprised by things like what's happening in Texas. He's not surprised by storms that brings flooding. He's not surprised by the next tragedy that will wreak havoc upon this earth and cost people lives and cost people their jobs and cost people their possessions. He's not surprised by those things. Any type of evil that brings death and destruction upon this earth, he is the one that's orchestrating it. He is the one that is releasing it. Now, he is not responsible for evil. He's not the cause of evil, right? When God created everything, going back to our understanding of Genesis, when God creates, God creates in a good way. God creates in a good way. I was watching a video put out by Gospel Coalition this week talking about what are some of the things that you can believe in old earth, new earth. You can believe in, in a lot of different things about creation. Did God use evolution to bring about things or did God create everything as it is? And there's, there's people on both sides. And I've already shared with you my beliefs on, on creation from the book of Genesis. But the video is talking about what are things that you have to believe to remain evangelical? What are things that you have to believe to be unified, even if you might disagree with about some of the details of creation? And one of the things that was stressed in that video is you have to believe that God created everything good. That God is not the author of evil. He's not the source of evil. He's not the originator of evil. And we know that God created all things good and that man and, and, and even angelic beings deviated from that goodness and became evil. God didn't create them in a status of evil, didn't create them as evil beings, right? And so God is the one who restrains and releases evil, but he's not the originator of evil. He's not the cause of evil. He's not the author of evil. And there's a, there's a careful line there that we have to toe. We can't, we can't ever assume then that God is the author of evil by saying that he controls evil or that he is the boss of evil. Evil happens because his creation rejects him and God now uses that evil 
for his glorious purposes. All right, so we trust in a sovereign God who restrains and releases evil properly. That's what we see here happening in verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. Number one, God tells evil when to act. God tells evil when to act. The voice here that initiates the events of the sixth trumpet comes from God's presence. We're not told who says this. We're told that John hears a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. And the instruction that comes from that altar says, release these four angels who have been bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. They're released to kill a third of mankind. And somehow these four angels then morph into this number of mounted troops that's twice 10,000 times 10,000, which ends up being 200 million. And they begin to ride upon the earth and they take one third of mankind. God tells evil when to act. The voice that initiates these events comes from God's presence. Now, this could possibly be Jesus talking. We've seen Jesus's voice before the presence of God echoing out commands. It could be an angel talking. I think the main point, why John writes to us and tells us that these instructions come from the altar of God, he wants us to understand that these instructions come from the authority of God. They come with his knowledge that these events will happen, right? This isn't, this isn't a secret. God doesn't, God doesn't look around and say, oh, wow, there's things coming out of the Euphrates River that I wasn't prepared for. No, the, the, the declaration for what's going to happen is issued from the throne of God. This altar before God is where the instructions come from, meaning that it's God's authority that this happens from. God's the one who gives the authority for this to happen. This is the same altar where the cries of justice originate back when we talked about the seals. Right? When we talked about the, the souls of those that have been beheaded under this altar crying out to God, when will justice happen? We read about the same altar in chapter 8 when it talks about the angel collecting the prayers of God and, or the prayers of mankind and, and they're put on this altar and they, they come before God and God responds to those prayers. Same altar. Right? John wants us to connect the fact that what is happening with these trumpets and the devastation that is coming upon the earth, it's in response to Christians praying for God's kingdom to come. It's in response to Christians crying out for a just God to act against evil. Right? What I want you to see this morning is that a sovereign God is acting and he's acting in partnership with mankind praying for these things to come about. It empowers our prayers because, again, it's a reminder to us that God hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. He responds here. This altar where the prayers of mankind have been gathered, it's from that altar that this, this declaration is issued that these angels should be released and judgment should come. The idea of horns is mentioned here. It says the four horns of the golden altar before God. The horns symbolize power and completeness the four horns, that number four represents completeness. Horns is gonna be used throughout the book of Revelation to talk about power. And so what we have here is the complete power of God being exercised in response to the prayer of the saints. 
It says that these angels have been bound, which implies that God is releasing what has previously been bound. Um, there's a debate about whether these angels are evil or good, but I think the fact that they're having to be bound indicates their evil nature. It's similar to the locusts being locked away. Um, what's being indicated here is that they were previously not able to do what they were wanting to do. They were bound up. They were tied up. They were withheld from their purpose until God decided now, now is the time for you to do what you want to do. They're, they're, they've been previously bound. They've been previously withheld from carrying out their purpose. And now God unleashes them. It says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And they're released to kill a third of mankind. There's a possible connection with chapter 7, verse 1. If you want to back up there, you'll remember that there were four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree until those that were supposed to be sealed were sealed. That it's possible we're talking once again about maybe a correlation between the four winds and these four angels. They were bound. They were restrained. They could not exercise authority until God gave them permission. What we have here is an innumerable army, 200 million. Again, I don't think it's meant to be a number that we specifically try to count out. I think, again, it's picturing a, a number that, that is, is, it's a high number. It's a, it's a number that, that would, um, in our minds, be a number that couldn't really be counted. But what we ultimately see here is that God is sovereign over this evil. He bound the evil. He released the evil Why? Because he prepared this evil for this purpose. Notice what it says. It says, release them to the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released. God took took evil that he did not create and he bound it. He put it away for a specific time and for a specific use. God, God tells evil when to act at the exact hour, the exact day, the exact month, and the exact year this thing was released. Man, that's a, that's, a, that's a complete nod to God's sovereignty that he has the power to bind this great evil. He has the power and the authority to release it. And in all of his wisdom, he knows the exact best time to do so sovereignty, wisdom exuding from this chapter. God controls everything, and he controls it at exactly the right time for his plans and his purposes. And he unleashes it. He unleashes it at the right time. He's prepared it for this purpose, precise time and a precise purpose, to kill a third of mankind. God tells evil when to act, but number two, God also tells evil how to act. He tells evil when evil can do things, and he also tells evil what to do when evil begins to move. This great army is limited to one-third of mankind. It can do no more and no less damage than what God permits it to do. It comes at precisely the right time in history. We already referenced this morning in chapter 7 where God is restraining the four winds from the four corners of the earth. It cannot bring damage upon the earth until all of his people are sealed but we also know that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God is restraining other forms of evil. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, talking about that great deception that's supposed to come upon the earth, it says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so 
until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There are certain evils that are restrained. They are not allowed to exercise any activity upon this earth until God tells them to. We see that all through Scripture. We see it again here in Revelation chapter 9. God has a precise time and a precise purpose for unleashing this evil upon earth, this judgment upon earth, and he does so according to his timing. As we begin to read what type of evil is coming and what type of judgment is coming, it says this innumerable army is made up of horses. John says, I saw these horses in my vision and those who rode on them, and they wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Fire, smoke, and sulfur is used throughout Scripture to indicate God's judgment. It's always a sign of God's judgment. Back in Genesis 19, 24, and 28, we talk about or we read about the 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 account of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And God brings judgment upon those cities. He spares Lot and his family, but he brings judgment upon those cities and the judgment that comes upon those cities. It's the only other time we see all three of these words together. The idea of fire, smoke, and sulfur all at one time we find in uh, the context of of Sodom and Gomorrah. We also see in uh, Deuteronomy 29, I'll give you a couple of these passages. Deuteronomy chapter 29 Verse 16, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. This is God's warning to Israel. He says, I've brought you out of Egypt. You saw what happened to Egypt for loving their idols. Beware, verse 18, lest there be among you a woman, a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout and overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. God threatens Israel and says, I'll do what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah to your land if you turn to idolatry. I'll bring fire and I'll bring brimstone, just like I did to Sodom and Gomorrah. God's always used fire, smoke, and brimstone as a sign of coming judgment. 2 Samuel chapter 22 is another passage. This is in response to David talking about God coming and acting against David's enemies. We've read this before. It says, um, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, a devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. 
He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Did God deal with David's enemies? Absolutely. Did God ride down on a cherub and shoot arrows and flame and, 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 and throw flames upon the earth? Not exactly, right? David says, man, it was like that. Like to see God act and move and respond to my prayers for deliverance, it conjures up images of God doing it in this way. And so I think we have to see the symbolism here in the Old Testament, see the symbolism possibly here in Revelation that it may not look exactly how we're reading it, but it certainly has that feel that God's judgment is coming with fire and smoke and brimstone, but it's in the same ways that he's always promised to bring judgment. And it's also a prequel to what's coming in the future for those that reject him. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. So while God will bring this upon the earth and, and bring devastation upon a third of mankind, it says in, verse, uh, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, um, Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Revelation 19, Revelation 20, and 21, all three of those passages as well talk about the future destination of those who worship idols and reject Jesus, that they have a future that's destined with fire and brimstone and smoke. It's the way that God's always talked about his coming judgment. We see that again here in Revelation chapter 9. I think also in Revelation chapter 9, we may have a clue as to what really comes from the mouth of these creatures? It says the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire, smoke, and sulfur came out of their mouths. The power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. You know, deception is one of the greatest weapons of the mouth. Second Thessalonians 2, which we've already read, talks about that great deception that's coming. But in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, we're told about other deception that's coming. It says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Talking about this great deception where the people of the earth believe this stuff and they reject Jesus, and it leads to their ultimate demise. When I read about the, the power being in the mouth of these horses, I can't help but think that deception may be what's being talked about here versus literal fire. In Psalm chapter 58, thinking in terms of the, of the, the lion-type head of these horses, in Psalm chapter 58, we get some similar verbiage. 
Psalm chapter 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. This is talking about evil people who tell lies, and it compares them, what, to serpents and to lions, That's the two descriptions that are being used of these horses that are riding around in the end times. They have tails like serpents that hurt and harm and wound, and they have lion-like heads. Here we're told that the teeth of of the evil are like lion's teeth that need to be ripped out because they tell lies. There may be a day where horses ride upon this earth and breathe fire, and they have they have heads like lions and tails like snakes, and they may kill a lot of mankind. But I can tell you there are false teachers on this planet that are doing the same type of devastation today. I was reading an article this week, famous quarterback Aaron Rodgers, who apparently grew up from a Christian foundation, Christian perspective. The whole article is about how Rob Bell has led him away from his Christian foundation to doubt the Bible, to doubt Jesus, and he's found himself in this new religion. I mean, if that's not lion-like teeth and snake-like tails, that is wreaking havoc upon this earth, killing people, maybe not physically, but spiritually in such a way where they'll be under God's judgment when Jesus comes back. Man, I don't know if, I don't know if fire-breathing horses is worse than that. I don't know if fire-breathing horses is worse than the type of deception that would lead somebody away from worshiping Jesus. Man, that's horrific. For someone to make that their occupation, their job, they're getting paid to spread that type of stuff and leading people away who are, who are not solid in their doctrine, and they're able to be tossed around and, and tossed about like waves when, when crafty doctrine comes into their life. Man, that's like a horse breathing fire with a snake-like tail that will ultimately kill mankind, that type of deception. The teeth need to be ripped out with those type of lies. I think what we can clearly see from this passage is that God is sovereign over this stuff. He tells evil when to act. He tells it how to act. Satan and his demons are real and dangerous, but thankfully they remain on a leash. They remain on a leash. They can only do what God allows them to do. The implication here is that all the events of history, especially those involving satanic activity, are under the ultimate authority of God's direction. All the events of history, especially those involving satanic activity, are under the ultimate authority of God's direction. So whether we're talking about a continual increase of deception that false teachers spread upon this earth, or if we're talking about literal fire-breathing horses, both are completely under the authority of God. Both are only unleashed according to God's precise timing and will. Number two, not only do we trust in a sovereign God who restrains and releases evil properly, and it it is proper for God to judge this earth, right? Because he is properly responding to man's sin. It's right and proper for God to judge this earth because man is sinful. But number two, we trust in a just God who punishes those who love evil. We trust in a just God who punishes those who love evil. His judgment is just because man loves evil. For our kids, God punishes lovers of evil. He's a just God because he punishes those who love evil. And he goes even further in his justice because he gives opportunity for repentance. And when that repentance is rejected, it's then when he brings judgment. Trust in a God, a just God who punishes those 
who love evil. So we walk away from Revelation chapter 9 here at the end, not really knowing exactly what these, these horses are, what this army is, whether it's a wave of false teachers and deception or whether it's a wave of literal creatures that breathe fire. Either way, they submit to God and his authority. But I think the clear aspect of the passage is what we find in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Number one, God's judgment falls on those who love their idols. God's judgment falls on those who love their idols. Humans will continue to worship the very thing that is killing them. Mankind will continue to worship the very thing that is killing him. Back in Deuteronomy, when God's giving instructions about idols to his people as they come out of Egypt, he's warning them. He's letting them know of the dangers. Verse 16 they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. They were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Bible attributes idol worship or idolatry to the worship of demons. 1 Corinthians 10.20 says something real similar. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And that puts our discussion this morning on what might be an idol in the life of a Christian in a whole new context. If we're talking about idolatry being demon worship. Now, I think in the immediate context, especially in the Old Testament, when there was a, a spiritual blindness that seemed to be a, a, across the earth, there was, a, there was a willingness to follow after false gods and to sacrifice your children to these things. I have a hard time believing that they had an inanimate object, a, a, a stone sculpture, that you could be convinced to give up your children for if they'd never seen any type of activity from it. I think Satan and his demons were able to cultivate an environment through their own evil, evil uh, powers to convince people that this is the right thing to do. I'm going to kill my kids for this thing. But even if we step back and say, okay, well, we're not guilty of that. Like, we're not going to do that. Like, when we talk about idols, we're not talking about sacrificing our kids to, to stone. But when we talk about idols in the life of a Christian today, it's still demonic in the sense that what we are doing is we are elevating creation above the creator. We're doubting the creator's goodness, which is the, the first lie that Satan spreads to humankind. We're doubting the goodness of, 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 create, of the creator, and we're saying, you know what? Creation looks better, right? This piece of fruit looks better than what God's promising us. And then it's just continued to unfold from there, that whatever we give our affection to, our time and our energy to, we believe that it's better than whatever God's calling us to do. These people here in Revelation 9, they dishonor the creator by giving undue honor to the creation. Romans 1.18. Idols are those things we are committed to more than God. Idols are the main instruments used by the forces of darkness to keep people in darkness. Things that promise satisfaction that fail to deliver. And that's why 
In Revelation chapter 9, what I already said to you was, man, these gods are failing to deliver on their promises, and it's why mankind is forced to take things that doesn't belong to them. Murders and sorceries and sexual immorality and theft, all these things indicate a dissatisfaction with their gods. God's judgment falls on those who love their idols. But number two, God's judgment also falls on those who love their sin. Humans will remain blind to the goodness of God's commands, right? God has commands against not murdering, not using sorcery, not seeking sexual immorality, not taking things that don't belong to you. And he has good reasons for all of those things. He has good reasons for all of those things because those things cause damage to to, um, human relationships, causes damage to human relationships. And, and thinking like in an immediate context, obviously murders, we can relate to that. Um, but, but people don't typically set out to be murderers. They're typically led down that path because of dissatisfaction with something. Sorceries, the word that's used there, can even be tied to drug use. And, and that obviously brings about damage in the, in the human relationships with others. Sexual immorality, like this never builds up trust when we're, when we're, t- when we're enjoying that outside of the confines of marriage. These things they continue to cling to, they don't repent from, despite God's judgment coming in waves upon the earth. God warns that these practices end in judgment. I want to read a couple of these to you because um, while I don't think anybody necessarily struggles particularly with murder, Jesus obviously talks about hatred in the heart being similar to murder. Um, sexual immorality is one that we're probably always going to have to address in the life of the church until Jesus comes back. Um, Maybe be worth memorizing some of these passages for those of you that may particularly struggle with some of these things here. Because Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, I mean, it talks about the destiny of where people end up that engage in this activity. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, All those things lead to murder, right? Fits of anger leads to murder. Rivalries, murder. Dissensions, murder. Divisions, murder. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You don't end up in the kingdom of God if you're pursuing those things, if you're giving yourself to that type of activity. Ephesians chapter five, verse five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. A strong warning there for people that engage in that type of activity. Revelation 22, verse 15. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. They're not there at the kingdom of God. They're not there in the new heavens and the new earth. And here's what's crazy. We, we talked about this in our C group too. Man, when, when, when devastation comes upon the earth, people seem to be ultra spiritually sensitive at that time, right? People go to church and pray when otherwise they don't typically do those things. Remember, remember back in, 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 um, 
when 9-11 happened, people were, were flooding church buildings and going to prayer services that, that had never really been before, right? There's just like this ultra sensitivity to spiritual things when devastation happens. People are willing to give more than they ever would normally give during times of devastation, right? I mean, money's flooding in to help people in Houston when, when it would be hard to get that type of money at any other time. Right? Like people, people had the money, they can spare the money, but if you, if you tried to, to garner that money for other purposes, it wouldn't be given. Right? There's, there's an ultra-sensitivity type of things when devastation happens. And what we're told here, when this great devastation is happening, when, the, when, the, when, when people should be at their highest sensitivity to spiritual things, there's still a refusal to repent of their idolatry and their acts. While time still remains for repentance, most will not take advantage of the opportunity. It says that not everybody's killed here. There's opportunity for repentance, but it's not taken advantage of. The last thing I put in my notes here under that, a lack of desire to repent rather than a lack of time will ultimately doom sinful man. Man's not going to run out of time. God could give them all the time for eternity and they're not going to repent. Time's not the issue. Revelation chapter 2, verse 21, a passage we've already studied about uh, the woman Jezebel in that church. I gave her time to repent, Jesus says, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. It's not a lack of time that man needs. It's not, time's not going to run out on man. God will, God will eventually bring an end to all things, but God could give man the end of time. And he still will not repent. He still will refuse to turn to God. The implication for us here, our eternal destiny is tied to what we believe deserves our attention and brings us ultimate satisfaction. Our eternal destiny is tied to what we believe deserves our attention and what brings us ultimate satisfaction. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're about to close. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 28. God's prophesying to his children. He says, the Lord's going to scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Verse 28. There you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Kind of similar language used in Revelation about what these gods can't do, right? Verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. God brings judgment and he relents from that judgment to bring about repentance. Here, children of Israel wandering away, worshiping other gods, and God promises that his mercy is still available to them. Psalm chapter 115. Psalm chapter 115. Verse four. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. 
Verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The application for us today is that first we trust in God. When evil occurs around us, we must trust the one who remains in control. All right, so we're going to see things around us that, that may be scary and may be devastating. We continue to trust in God because he remains in control of all of that. But number two, don't lose sight of the fact that there is a call to repentance here. Are we guilty of elevating any area of creation to a sinful status in our life? Are we guilty of elevating any area of creation to a sinful status in our life? I mean, I just want to pause here for a second because I think this is worth noting. I mean, we're talking about people not going to heaven or not being on the new earth for eternity because of their idolatry. And we need to know what we are prone to idolize in our life to make sure that we're not grouped with those people. And we're not talking about, a, 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 we're not talking about security of salvation here because if you're a believer, you will persevere to the end. And the passages in Scripture that talk about assurance of salvation are given to the individual for themselves. I don't know. I, I can't know if you're truly a believer or not until that day when we're all gathered together. And so until then, I continue, and we all should continue to call others to repentance as a sign that there is true belief. Because if somebody in this church wanders away into idolatry, there's the possibility that they were never a believer and they're left out of the kingdom. We ought to know, we need to prioritize knowing what do we tend to idolize in our life so that we can confess it and repent from it. The discussion questions this morning, what, what are typical idols in the life of a Christian here in our context? How do we know when they've become an idol? And have we ever had to confess and repent of something that's become an idol? And I think that the amount of feedback probably dwindles in those questions. We can give a lot of examples of what could become an idol, right? Money, kids, spouse, job, fame, house, toys, we can give a lot of answers to that question. What are things that could become an idol? We're probably less likely to be able to give feedback on how do we know when those things have become an idol because we're probably not giving a lot of attention to trying to figure out if we have idols in our life. We're great at knowing what could be an idol. I don't know that we're great at knowing when something has become an idol. And there's probably even less feedback on have you ever confessed something as an idol in your life and repented from it? And I'm telling you it's important that we think through these things because if we're not careful, we become idolaters. And idolaters are described as people who don't make it in the end, who come under God's judgment. And I think this ought to also caution us that if we don't repent today, we may not be able to repent in the future. Like we're given a picture of, of unbelievers in the future and they don't repent. They don't repent. I mean, that's a call to people that are not Christians right now that you understand that Jesus came as the creator of the universe to die in our place because we gave ourselves to things that, that were not worthy of our satisfaction. We gave ourselves to other gods and Jesus came to rescue us from that. Just like he talks about in Deuteronomy, you're gonna give yourself to other things. You're gonna give yourself to false gods. You're gonna give yourself to sinful practices. But my mercy extends to you. And the only way that God can extend mercy is that he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our, our idolatry, to pay for our sexual immorality, to pay for our murders and our dissensions and our enmity. He came to pay for all of that, to forgive us of those sins so that we can repent, so that we can be forgiven, and so that we can be joined to him 
for eternity. Trust when evil around us is happening that God controls it. Repent of any idols that have sprung up in our life. Our family worship questions for this week. And this is, this is a great way to kind of determine, and what am I prone to idolize in my life, and how do I know when it's become an issue? What are some things that you love most in life? Spouse, kids. You might not say money, but probably the things that money allows you to purchase. What are things that you love most in life, and how can you use those things to worship God to show him that you love him more than those things? Man, the greatest protection against idolatry is identifying the things that you love most that could easily become idols, and you work to make sure that you're using them to worship Jesus. Because God gives us tools to worship him. He gives us created things. He gives us things that could become idols, and if we use them properly, man, we point people to Jesus, right? Our spouse is probably the easiest one to even think through. The Bible describes marriage as a mystery that points people to the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus and the church when a man and woman have come together. I can idolize my spouse and make her everything in my life, or I can use our marriage relationship to point people to Jesus. I can idolize it, or I can use it as a worship tool. And that's true for anything that we can plug in as an answer here. And we can start this discussion early with our children. We can talk about with our kids, what do you love most? And it's going to be some petty stuff that's going to be given to you. And probably the easiest thing is, how do I use that to worship God, to show my love in more than those things? Is simply sharing some of those things that they love most in life, right? Allowing them to cling to those things very loosely, being willing to give those things up. I mean, that's a great sign, too, of something that's become an idol. Is it something that you could lose and still love Jesus the same? Could you let go of it and still love Jesus the same? Let's pray together. Tyson's going to come, and and we're going to sing one more song together as an act of worship before we leave. Father, we thank you for this passage. We know that it can be confusing as we try to understand the symbolism and and whether to take this literally or not. God, we're thankful that even if the worst-case scenario is true, that fire-breathing horses are coming upon this earth one day, that you're in control of them, and they can't do anything you don't allow them to do. Father, I pray that we would hone in more on the things that are clear in this passage because we could easily get bogged down in trying to figure out how do fire-breathing horses show up? But God, help us not to miss the main point of this passage that if we love idols, we fall under that judgment. God, as Christians, help us to identify things that we may love too much in our life, things that were created for us to enjoy but for us to use as a means of worshiping you in that enjoyment. God, help us to identify things that we may love too much that we need to reprioritize in our life. God, help us to think through some of those things as we leave today to make sure that we are not guilty of the very things that these people in Revelation refuse to repent of. Help us not to be blinded and deceived into our call to repentance. We thank you and praise you for your goodness. We thank you and praise that we can trust you. Pray that you would continue to convict us and encourage us where we need it as we sing to you now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.